All right, so we are looking at our scripture today from Matthew chapter 16. We're, I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 19 and 21 through 23, if you want to read along. Like I said, I'm reading, this is NIV, um, but it's the Stewardship Study Bible, so I think that's just kind of fun. All right. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That is the word of God for the people of God. Just get myself organized here. Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our journey um, of following the disciple Simon Peter as he takes his many steps and missteps as a disciple of Jesus. Through the journey of Simon Peter, we see reflected in our own discipleship journeys. Um, we see ourselves reflected in that, full of incredible moments of faith and certainty, as well as some mistakes and low points along the way. And today's story is a remarkable passage that I could very easily dedicate like an entire month to this that I just read. Um, there's just so much to unpack in it, but we're going to dive right in because there are a lot of things I want to cover remembering that it's often in the seemingly insignificant details of the story that things get really, they come to life, they get revealed. Uh, and the first detail that I want to talk about is location. So for years when I would read through scripture and they would talk about these different locations, I would be like, well, that's, that's interesting. They didn't really inform the story for me. It's, I don't have a really solid picture in my head of where everything is in the Holy Lands. Um, but I know people who went who went to the Holy Lands, and for them, the location becomes an integral part of the story. Um, and I think if that's something you're interested in doing, you should definitely go. I haven't been there yet, um, but it is on my bucket list. Um, but they just say that, you know, to go and see these places where Jesus preached, it just brings the stories to life because Jesus often used wherever he was as the beginning of that teaching, of that story. And we talked a bit about that on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so 
understanding location actually matters. If the gospel writers took the time to include where Jesus was or where he took the disciples before he says what he says, they thought it mattered. And in today's story, we're going to see that Caesarea, Caesarea, there we go, uh, Philippi, that location matters, especially uh, as a backdrop to the questions that Jesus asked his disciples. So I had this on the slide uh, and I even printed it out for you. So this is a map of kind of the Holy Land. And so we've been talking a lot about the Sea of Galilee. Remember, Simon Peter is from the north side, the north west side of the Sea of Galilee and Bethsaida. I think this is probably backwards for you, so I apologize. Um, Caesarea Philippi is way up here. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, which is already on the north side. Uh, we have Jerusalem way down here. So you can kind of see they're way up in the north country. So it's 25 miles. It probably would have taken Jesus and the disciples a few days to walk from where they were up to this location. Uh, and for a long time, this location wasn't actually a city. It was just a place of worship for pagans. Uh, it was known as Panias. It was to worship the god Pan, which was the god of nature, natural things, and a bunch of other things. And the area is gorgeous. Um, it's very beautiful. It's a very fitting place to worship a god of nature. Uh, there's a waterfall, there's a river, and then there's this mountain with a huge rock wall um, on the bottom of it, and it's called Mount Hermon. And so this is kind of what it looks like today. So you can see the rock wall here, um, and you can just kind of tell it's very lush, it's very green, um, and, and this rock wall is about 70 feet high. Behind here, in this rock wall, was a chasm like a that people could go into, and people would, that's how they started to worship is they would leave offerings kind of in the back of this chasm and eventually uh, different temples were built in front of it and then a city nearby uh, and one of the temples that was built was for the roman emperor augustus caesar um, and the person who built it was king herod the great king herod uh, we know from jesus birth stories and so they kind of all tie together it was king herod's son philip uh, who established the city nearby, which is why it's called Caesarea Philippi. Um, and so at the time, there was a belief about Roman emperors, uh, especially about Julius Caesar, who would have been Augustus Caesar's great uncle, that he had become a god that upon his death, he became divine. And so Augustus, who had a temple built by King Herod in this area, was known as a son of a god. Uh, son, great nephew, but son. Uh, so that's an interesting detail. Yeah. These are things I want you to remember. So Jesus brings his disciples to this place, known for pagan worship, with these temples built to pagan gods and Roman emperors, with divinity attributed to them. And Jesus asks his disciples a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So let's stop for a moment and consider the question, and especially the phrase, the Son of Man. Now, we immediately tend to think that Jesus is talking about himself, but we see from the answers that the disciples give that they have a different referent in mind. 
The phrase, the Son of Man, comes out of the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel to describe the one that was coming, that would be given rule, glory, and kingship. That comes right out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. So the disciples respond that they have heard people claim that John the Baptist was the Son of Man, or Elijah, or another prophet. These are the rumors that are being shared. But then Jesus asks another question. What about you? Who do you say that I am? That, do you see how the question changes? He's not asking who the son of man that was spoken about in the prophets. He wants the disciples. He wants to know who the disciples think he is. Remember, at this point, they have heard him teach. They have seen him perform miracles. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him control the weather. They've experienced quite a bit at this point. And now he's asking them, what do you think about all of this? Now, when I am teaching a class, whether it's Sunday school or confirmation, a Bible study, it doesn't really matter. And I ask people what they think. The majority of people in any given room will get really quiet and refuse to make eye contact with me, often just kind of staring down at the table, hoping that someone else uh, would answer the question. And more often than not, they are usually saved by one person in the room that cannot handle silence and will say whatever they're thinking, whether it's a fully formed thought or not. Uh, and for the disciples, they were saved by Simon Peter. Simon Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I feel like had there been a microphone at that moment, this would be a mic drop moment. Uh, because the answer is so good. He is so right, probably more right than he even fully understands. Jesus praises Simon's answer. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for the flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now, before we get further into the story, let's, let's unpack what Simon Peter just said about Jesus. First, Simon Peter says, rightly so, that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, this was a huge statement because Jews had been waiting for the Messiah for centuries, and they built up in their minds all kinds of ideas about what that person would be like. What would the Messiah be like? What would they do? How would they accomplish the goals um, that they believed the Messiah would have? People who were more radical in their faith, people like Simon Peter, would have believed the Messiah to be a great military and political leader that would overthrow Roman oppression and establish Israel once again as this great kingdom, and that the Messiah would serve as their king, much in the line of King David. At this point in history, others had claimed to be the Messiah, only to be proven false by having nothing really happen. So Simon Peter rightly claims that Jesus is the Messiah, but he might not at this point have the right ideas by what that actually means about who Jesus is and what Jesus had actually come to do. Second, he says that Jesus is the son of the living God. Remember the location. Remember that they are sitting in a place where temples had been built to Augustus Caesar, the heir of the dead God, Julius Caesar, symbols of the Roman Empire and this oppressive force over the Israelites. Jesus had taken them to this spot to see where their loyalties lie. Where do you put your ultimate trust? In Augustus Caesar, the son of the dead God, Julius Caesar? Or in Jesus, the son of the living God? 
Peter rightly understands that Jesus is God's son, but again might not fully comprehend all that it means, at least not yet. You see how loaded that question becomes and how loaded Simon Peter's answer is in light of where they are sitting in Caesarea Philippi? It's the details that bring these stories to life. So we see that Simon Peter totally nails the answer and Jesus is happy and he tells Simon Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This cannot be overstated on how huge this is. Again, we go back to Jesus calling Simon Peter, which means the rock. And the word in Greek that Peter comes from is Petra, which doesn't mean like a stone. It actually means a rock ledge or a cliff, much like the one that they are currently sitting in front of at the base of Mount Hermon. He's not calling Simon a stone. He is saying that you are as solid as a rock wall, and it's on you that I will build my church. Again, the location matters. At this point, I'm sure Simon Peter's head is spinning and he's staring at this rock wall and Jesus is telling him that Simon Peter will be given the keys to the kingdom and all of this authority. Basically, it is he who will decide who is in and who is out, what will be allowed and what won't be allowed. That is an insane amount of responsibility and authority that Jesus is handing to Simon Peter. But also imagine the level of affirmation that must have meant for this man. Remember, nobody thought much of him before he became a disciple. He was a fisherman from the north side of the Sea of Galilee, from lower class status and expendable in so many people's eyes. And now he has been given more authority than any person ever has. This is probably one of the highest moments of Peter's life. But true to form, it isn't gonna last long. As we saw last week with Peter, Peter, with Peter stepping out of the boat, he often immediately follows great strides in faith with great stumbles. And Jesus has this moment with Simon Peter. He begins to tell his disciples not to tell anyone that he is the Messiah. One of the main reasons for that is there were, again, those beliefs about who the Messiah was going to be. Um, and basically, it would have just drawn too much attention uh, from not the right people and would have prevented Jesus from bringing about God's kingdom in the way that Jesus had intended. And the way that Jesus intended to bring about God's purposes included him suffering and being killed in Jerusalem. Already at this point, he knows this and he's trying to teach his disciples this, but it's difficult because frankly, it goes against everything that they had believed and hoped for up until this point about who the Messiah is and should be. And who is the person who struggles the most with this teaching? Simon Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. This isn't the route that Simon Peter saw in his head for accomplishing the work of God's kingdom and the purposes of the Messiah. And so he takes Jesus aside and tries to change his mind. He's going to tell Jesus to stop talking this nonsense. And just like that, 
Jesus goes from praising Peter and giving him the keys to the kingdom of heaven to rebuking Peter. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Peter went from getting it so right to getting it so wrong. And Jesus isn't saying that Peter is now somehow Satan, but Jesus is remembering back to his temptation where Satan tried to tempt Jesus with ruling the whole world as long as Jesus bowed down to Satan. Jesus refused then to give in to power without suffering. And out of the mouth of Simon Peter, his beloved disciple, he hears that temptation once again. Jesus knew the road that laid ahead of him. He knew the suffering he would go through and the way that he would die. And we know that he wasn't excited about it. And it would have been so tempting to find another way, to go the way of Simon Peter and become a war hero. But that's not God's way. I think Simon Peter speaks for so many of us in this moment, the desire to avoid suffering. Peter in this moment saw his friend and his leader beginning to go down a very difficult path and he wanted to protect him but he also wanted to protect his own ideas of what should happen because if Jesus took a difficult path that included suffering and death and Simon Peter was a disciple of Jesus guess where Simon Peter is headed a disciple follows their master and since we are disciples of Jesus Christ we have the same path ahead of us. But Adam Hamilton, who wrote this series, it's based on um, his book, Simon Peter, that we're doing this series. And I'm going to read a quote from him because he says it so well. And there's just no way for me to say it better. <laughs> and so this is, this is straight from the book, Simon Peter. The challenge is that we prefer self-fulfillment to self-denial. We would prefer to avoid sacrifice and instead to play it safe without suffering or personal cost. And we're happy to follow Jesus provided it means blessings and bliss, hope and love, forgiveness and mercy. We want our religion to bless us, but we'd prefer it not to ask anything too hard in return. Now, this is true for me. I don't like self-denial. I prefer to have a convenient faith that doesn't demand too much sacrifice on my part. But if faith is authentically Christian, it will lead me to give and live sacrificially, to yield my ego, to seek to live a life of servanthood, to serve others, and at times to make decisions I don't want to make in answer to his call. Right? That's good. The life that you long for doesn't come from getting everything you want or achieving all of your professional or personal goals. It doesn't come from getting the house or the dream job or going on that incredible vacation or having the exact amount of kids that you'd always dreamed of. The fulfillment that you long for comes from servanthood. It comes from self-denial. It comes from sacrifice and from deeply loving others. Recently, I watched a documentary on Taylor Swift on Netflix. And if you are someone who has to be home all week, I would encourage you to check it out. It's called Miss Americana. 
And it was fascinating, but there was a part that really struck me. Taylor wanted to be a star very early on in her life. I think she was only 16 when she had her first hit song. In the documentary, she was reflecting on when she had won some award for the second time. It was like a Grammy or something. Uh, maybe album of the year, I think. And she said <clears throat> that she remembered thinking in that moment where she had gotten, attained the things she had worked years to attain. Is this it? Was this my dream? Her whole life, she had dedicated to that one moment and it only lasted a moment and it didn't fulfill her in any way that she thought that it would. So she had to change what her life was gonna be about after that. I think that's a huge lesson. If your life is always about yourself or about attaining things or accolades or experiences, you will always be left wanting more. Always be searching for the next thing. But that's not what we were created for. Instead, when you live your life self-sacrificially, you will discover that it is when you find, that's when you find yourself and you find your soul being satisfied. Simon Peter had yet to learn this truth, and I suspect that many of us have yet to let that truth sink in and guide our lives. Being a Christian isn't about showing up when it's convenient. It's not about accumulating blessings and waiting for your eternal reward. Being a Christian is about loving God and others even when it is inconvenient or it costs you something. Maybe even it would cost you everything. Being a Christian is about being committed to God and letting Jesus be the Lord of your life, allowing Jesus to guide your steps. Being a Christian may not always be an easy path, but it's the only one where you will find the fulfillment that you desire. So I want us to end today with a prayer out of our own tradition called the Wesley, Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. And I posted it below. I have this taped to my desk. It's actually literally right here. I'm touching it right now. It's taped to my desk because I need it as a constant reminder that my life isn't about me. It's about God and what God has asked me to do. So I hope that uh, you will say this prayer together with me. Let us pray. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Amen.